0: Just um, getting started and just want to remind you, uh, refresh your memory, uh, about what we were talking about before the break. Uh, so we were talking about uh, first um, the concept of strangers and kindness of strangers right? Um, that uh, um, that Lena would be a recipient of. Um, and then we were talking about um, the um, about neighbors and what could come to us um, from neighbors and not always good things. Um, and High Tower is the recipient of the not always good things coming from our neighbors. But High Tower, as we also know, um, is very emphatic that in spite of what happens to him, in spite of the beatings um, and so on, um, that he is actually surrounded by two people. So it really, Takes a tremendous act of willpower um, to be able to say that. Um, And so this is the quote from Hightower They are good people. All that any man can hope for is to be permitted to live quietly among his fellows. Um, So it is. Um, a proposition, a statement that really is sort of thrown, you know, in our face and in the face of all the things that have happened to him. Um, so today, what I'd like to do is to use race as a test case for Hightower's proposition. We all know that Joe Christmas um, is someone whose racial identity is ambiguous. I would say from beginning to end, we don't really know for sure um, what his parentage. I mean, you know, we have sort of very, we have good guesses, but we don't know for sure, Uh, and we certainly don't know the genetic makeup of someone like Joe Christmas. So, in the in that context, um, I think it's especially uh, relevant to talk about some of the contemporary discussion of race, Um, and um, and this is not even so new. I mean, it was came out in two thousand and three. Um, It was a special issue of Scientific American, uh, whether race exists. And it makes a strong argument um, that race is misleading Mm. in the sense that we look at the physical characteristics, the facial features of people, and we assume that race has a very solid existence that is real. Um, But actually, the facial characteristics or the physical attributes do not always correspond to our uh, genetic makeup. So, you know, how people look actually um, is not a very good way to tell us who they are biologically. Um, and so the scientific argument special issue or that essay uh, is about the importance of thinking outside of the box of noticeable or observable visible characteristics um, to thinking about medical, you know, what would come into play in a medical situation. This is Scientific American, after all. Um, so this is this was back in um, 2003, and um, even earlier than that, um, on the front cover of Time magazine um, is the face, new face of America, um, and it's really about America becoming a mixed race nation. Um, this is, um, and in fact that is the case. You know, I look at you know everyone, yeah and not. Quite often I can't really tell you know what background, uh, ethnic background people are from. Um, and that is the case. This is a computer-generated image, um, and we don't really know she's made up of the trays of many races, and so it's hard to tell. But she's a very typical American face. Um, and around the same time, uh, a book came out by um, F. James Davis called "Who Is Black?" Actually, this um, was quite an important book when it came out in 1992. To such an extent that. In his 10th um, anniversary, PBS actually did a special program um, title, Who is Black?, and featured that book. Um, and his argument is very, very pertinent um, to Faulkner's novel. Um, we don't actually know um, who is black in this novel. So it is a question that is not answered, um, and it's perhaps not meant to be answerable, even at the end of the novel. And this is... Um, um, image that um, Ashley Tao used for her section and it's a, it's a great section. I'm very happy to be there. Um, but this is, um, so I just borrowed it from her. Um, and this is an Aberdeen magazine uh, quiz, um, 1952. Uh, again, but even back in 1952, um, people were realizing that if you look at people, you don't really know what race they are. Um, and so you know, I think that most people will actually get a few wrong answers for that quiz. Um, so I think that all of this is just to um, set the stage um, for the very um, complicated um, and maybe not meant to be resolved uh, landscape that Faulkner has set up for us um, in, in light in August. Um, and so what I'd like to talk about today is the word nigger. And of course, you know, that's the word that would have to be used because um, just as in the 50s the word Negro uh, was the standard term um, in the 20s and 30s uh, nigger would have been the standard term so it was not a racial slur. The use of the word nigger, um, even though it wasn't necessarily a racial slur, um, it nonetheless was a charged mm-hmm. epithet. Um, it always is has carried excessive semantic burden. Um, and because it carries excessive semantic burden, um, it also opens itself up to multiple uses. So today we'll look at the way that word is being used by different people in different contexts and for different purposes. So the, we'll go down the list. Shame, you know, we'll be talking about all of this, um, and also spoken by other people. Um, and also when um, the word is spoken um, by the person hmm. himself. So I um, just notice this microphone has a way of diminishing itself. Um, so um, the, these are the people that we'll be looking at who use the word nigger. Uh, first is uh, Joe Brown, and then the dietitian uh, a couple of times, and then Hightower, and then Bobby. The waitress, and then Joanna Burden, and, and then Joe Christmas himself. He uses the word "nigger" for himself. Um, but first, let's um, talk. Look at the way Joe Brown uses that word. Um, at this point, Joe Brown is being questioned by the sheriff, right? So you know, we know that um, the Joanna's body has been discovered. You know that her house has has burned down, um, and the sheriff is questioning um, uh, Joe Brown and. Um, and there's $1,000 um, that is up for you know anyone who can help solve the case. So Joe Brown is full of high hopes that he'll be the one to get the $1,000. But as the sheriff questions him more and more comes out, it seems less and less likely that the $1,000 will be in his own pocket. So he's getting desperate. And that is when that word comes up. Because they said it was like he had been saving what he told them next just such a chime as this. Like he had (laughs) known that if it come to a pinch, this would... This is um, Brian telling Hightower. Like he had known that if it come to a pinch, this would save him, even if it was almost worse for a white man to admit what he would have to admit than to be accused of the murder itself. That's right, he said. he says. Go on. Accuse me. Accuse the white man that's trying to help you. With what he knows, accuse the white man, and let the nigger go free. Accuse the white, and let the nigger run. So this is the classic race card, you know, that we recognize so well, and unfortunately it still has some currency. Um, and um, so he's playing the, the the race card because he's really desperate. What is really interesting is how subtle this portrait, even of someone. Like Joe Brown, who has so little saving grace to him, you know, this is um, really someone who's supremely unlikable. Um, but even for someone who is supremely unlikable, um, Faulkner nonetheless portrays him as someone who is not incapable of feeling shame. Right. So it is shameful, even for someone like Joe Brown, to use the race card. That you know that this is. When, he is not, when there's nothing else he can do, he would do that. So he's not such a racist or such a whatever <laughs> that he is blind to what he's doing. Um, and So I would say that even though this is um, Joe Brown doing one of the despicable things that he's capable of doing, um, in the very act of doing that, um, he recognizes completely that he is being despicable. Um, so this is one kind of self-contained usage, um, shameful and shameful even to the person who is doing it. Um, and the next uh, couple of usages um, are revolving around the dietitian, um, and we know that, that um, Joe Christmas is um, in the in her behind the curtains and watching this whole scene unfolding between um, the dietitian and her bowl, um, and eating toothpaste and having no idea what's going on outside, but the dietitian thinking that he knows everything. So she drags him out, um, and um, this is what Joe sees when she drags him out. The face no longer smooth, pink and white, surrounded now by wild and disheveled hair, whose smooth bends once made him think of candy, A little rat. The thin, furious voice hissed. You little rat spine. on me. you little nigger bastard. Um, so, at, she's never called him that before. So, is at this moment of extreme vulnerability on the part of the dietitian that that word would come rushing up. So, this it has some relation um, to the Joe Brown usage in the sense that this is a word that comes out um, when when, when your back is against the wall, basically. You know, um, you, this is the thing that, that, that you fling at people. Um, but the, the dietitian actually is more resourceful than um, Joe Brown. She, she actually is um, able to use that word in, in some other context. So this is the next installment of the word nigger coming out of the mouth of the dietitian. Um, And she has something else to offer Joe Christmas. Her hand is outstretched, and upon it lay a silver dollar. Her voice went on, urgent, tense, fast. A whole dollar. See, how much you could buy. Some to eat every day for a week. And next month, maybe, I'll give you another one. You seem to see rank tubes of toothpaste, like coated wood, endless and terrifying. His whole being coiled in a rich and passionate revulsion. I don't want no more, he said. I don't never want no more, he said. He didn't need to look up to know what her face looks like now. Tell, she said. Tell him, you little nigger bastard. You nigger bastard." So this is the, the evolution of the dietician, um, that she's not so vulnerable now. That she's actually on the verge of going on the offensive, uh, but not quite, because she just wants to make peace. Really, she has wants to have a, cut a deal with Joe Christmas, basically. Um, and so, what she doesn't understand is that he doesn't understand the concept of bribery. Um, Joe Christmas is really interesting um, in that way. He doesn't always understand kindness, um, and he even doesn't understand the next thing down, I think, which is bribery. Um, and so for him, it, the silver dollar just means endless tooth- toothpaste, um, and can be more, uh, that can be more repugnant to him. Um, but he knows enough to know that rejecting that silver dollar would actually be an automatic guarantee of the appearance. Of that word from the dietician. So a pattern is beginning to develop. First, complete vulnerability on the part of the dietician. Then not complete vulnerability, but uh, something, her scheme is being foiled unwittingly by Joe Christmas. And that word comes out again. So it's just a kind of handy, uh, part involuntary, but um, part reflexive, and part handy, almost instrumental usage of that term, um, and we'll move on now um, to a completely instrumentalized usage. Right. So, with the dietitian, it begins with a non-instrumentalized, uh, involuntary usage. By the third time she uses that word, it is completely instrumentalized and completely calculated. And that's when the dietitian goes to the matron of the orphanage and uses that word "nigger" one more time. How did she know about this? The dietitian did not look away. I didn't. I had no idea at all. Of course, I knew it didn't mean anything when the other children called him nigger. Nigger? The matron said. The other children. They have been calling him nigger for years. Sometimes I think the children have a way of knowing things that grown people of your and my age. Don't see um, Down to that little detail, people of your age, of your and my age, they actually are not the same age. So um, when you have somebody using that kind of construction, you just know that they are completely, you know, they're highly manipulative and knowing exactly what they're doing. Um, so that little giveaway detail at the end is basically just a kind of a small... It's just the icing on the cake of this racialization, this very deliberate um, racialization of Joe Christmas um, in order to get him sent away from the orphanage. Um, so the dietitian, I would say, is probably um, you know right up there in, in my mind along with um, Joe Brown uh, in terms of unlikability. Uh, but she is better, I think, um, at what she is doing, and she's so she's succeeds in, uh, in pinning um, that epitaph uh, on Joe Christmas. Um, and so this is really the first thing that we should say about that epitaph is that it is something that someone else pins on you. It doesn't really grow from inside you. Um, it is not a genetic Attribute about you is an attribution. It's not an internal, genetic, congenital attribute. It is an attribution that is foisted upon you, um, and that is what the dietitian is doing right there. So um, it, that's that is the usage of the word "nigger" on one side of the spectrum. Joe Brown and the dietitian, and now we we'll move on to the other end of the spectrum when it's sheer agony to use that word. For, by the time the dietitian uses the word the last time, she's actually very good at what she's doing. It doesn't really touch her anymore. She's completely distanced herself and therefore able to manipulate that word. But um, here is on the other side of the spectrum is someone who simply cannot have that distance from that word and so it's an agonized usage. And this comes out in the context of a conversation between um, uh, b- between Hightower and Baron, um, And Baron is telling him about this new development, about burning down the house, joining his body and so on, uh, but also about Christmas. About Christmas, about yesterday and Christmas. Christmas is pot nigger. About him and Brown and yesterday. Pot negro, Hightower says. His voice sounds light, trivial. Like a thistle bloom falling into silence, without a sound, without any weight. He does not move. For a moment longer, he does not move. Then there seems to come over his whole body, as if its parts were mobile-like face features, that shrinking in denial. And Byron sees that the still, flaccid, big face is suddenly slick with sweat. But his voice is light and calm. What about Christmas and Browning yesterday?" he said. So it is that other disparity between the bodily gesture, the facial expression, the bodily expression on Hightower and the still-controlled lightness of tone. It is, that is what gives. Um, Hightower away, um, that not only is the possibility of Joe Christmas being black, not, not only is it the most terrifying of possibilities, but it's so terrifying that he can't really afford to acknowledge its gravity. Right. So it's not just that it's just terrible, but he can't even admit to it. It's that double. Double combination that suggests just how grave the situation is, um, because high power knows exactly what's going to happen. And once the question of race comes into play, there's probably just one outcome. Um, you know, he knows it from his own personal history, from what has happened to him, to his cook, um, and there was really nothing compared with this. So it's just a terrible scenario. Um, the and point of which he can already see and that's why he's behaving in this particular way um, but this is also a point the kind of the division the lightness of tone and the kind of involuntary sh- really shrinking and sweating and and just just um, just just, just um, you know just just kind of devastation that's coming coming over um, high tower it points to the doubleness of high tower that I think is worth um, talking about, this is a slight digression, um, but Faulkner is really very emphatic about the two faces of I tell, Um I think that sometimes we tend to see him too much as a victim, um, and certainly what's happened to him um, invites us to think of him as just a victim of his neighbor's violence. But Faulkner is emphatic from beginning to end that he's two-faced. His face is as one gaunt and flabby. It is as though there were two faces one imposed upon the other, looking out from beneath the pale, bald skull, surrounded by a fringe of gray hair, from behind the twin motionless glares of his spectacles." Down to the twin glares of his spectacle, um, to the early moment we know that it's coming out of the church and the reporters were taking a picture of him. And they took a picture of him from the sign. He looks like Satan. Um, down to this moment, um, when this lightness of tone is belied by the involuntary shrinking of his body. Hightower seems to be the meeting place for two contradictory impulses. Um, And so we can also say that, you know, metaphorically, he's also the meeting place for the goodness of strangers and the brutality of your neighbors. He really is a kind of unresolved meeting place for those two cross currents. Um, And so, but right now, right there, um, he's trying his best. To trivialize that event, right? You know, say that it really is nothing at all. It is of no consequence. Um, we'll look at one coming now to Bobby, the waitress. We'll look at one instance, another instance of someone trying to trivialize that that um, fact, um, the possibility that Joe could be uh, black. So this is the two lying, lying in line, lying bed, um, and he makes this confession. I got some nigger blood in me. Then she lay perfectly still, with a different stillness, but he did not seem to notice it. He lay peacefully too, his hands slow up and down her flank. You're what? she said. I think I got some nigger blood in me. His hands his eyes were closed, his hands slow and unceasing. I don't know, I believe I have. She did not move. She said the ones you're lying. All right, he said, not moving his hand not seizing. I don't believe it. The voice said in the darkness. Um, So, you know, I think that Faulkner is going out of his way to make this a very peaceful scenario. So this is the equivalent of that lightness of tone that Hightower is using when he's facing the possibility that Joe Christmas is black. And here, Joe Christmas is making that confession himself, but really he doesn't know. Um, but all oh, yeah. the emphasis here is on how peaceful the scene is. He's just stroking her. He doesn't stop when he makes that confession. So it's as if nothing is happening. It wants to create an illusion that nothing is happening, but actually everything is happening, right? So the waitress, Bobby's reaction goes along with the pretence that this is really nothing at all she can completely she's not going to believe in it there's nothing to it. Um, but we also know that 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 takes a lot of willpower that that assertion I don't believe it or there's nothing to it you're just imagining it. all those statements actually take a lot of willpower to say and how <coughs> superficial that assertion is becomes clear when something else happens. Um, and then Bobby uses the word nigger one more time, this time in a completely different tone of voice. Um, this is much later when Joe has killed uh, we think He has killed uh, his foster father in the kitchen accidentally. Um, and now he's going to see Bobby one more time. And now they know that they have to leave, that they're in big trouble. Um, so this is a moment of duress, um, the equivalent of the dietitian's duress, um, the equivalent of Joe Brown's duress, and this is what body says under duress. It was very much like it had been in the schoolhouse, someone holding her as she struggled and shrieked, her hair wild from the jerking and tossing of her head, her face, even her mouth, in contrast to the hair as still as a bad mouth in a death face, bastard son of a bitch, getting me into a jam that always treated you like a white man, a white man. Perhaps Joe did not hear at all, Not the screaming waitress. He told me himself he was a nigger, the son of a bitch, me f worth for nothing, a nigger son of a bitch that would get me in a jam with Club Hopper police." Um, so this is... Um, this is not by design. <coughs> it is involuntary usage. But it is telling that that's the word that all of us, or at least every single one, every single character in Light and August would reach for. That is the word that would come involuntarily into our mouths when we are under duress. Um, it also says that no matter what good intentions we have, or how much willpower, we hope to bring to bear on a racialized situation, that that willpower is always going to be unequal to the terrible weight, semantic weight, that comes with that word. That every individual effort to lighten or trivialize that appetite, every attempt to make light of it is going to fail. This is probably... Another possible meaning for the word light and order is that this is an attempt of various people to make light of the phenomenon of race and not succeeding. Um, so um, this, um, the body is, is, in that sense, not even uh, especially interesting character on their own, other than um, as a kind of a dramatized and concentrated version of the sort of involuntary Reactions and involuntary usage of that word when we are ourselves under duress, um, but all of this is really quite marginal. Think of Hightower; isn't um, isn't all that marginal? But um, he, uh, his reaction is in many ways is, is an entry point to his psychology. But there's one person um, for whom the word "nigger" is front and center, and and in many ways, um, she is more extreme to be a generalized case. So um, Faulkner uses Joanna Burden um, as a fairly atypical case of thinking, very emotional response to the word nigger um, that is in many ways um, on the far end of the spectrum that nonetheless reflects on the medium, on the mean of that spectrum. Um, But she has this very extreme notion of what the word nigger means, which is that it is an eternal curse, um, and the context of which is the death of her grandfather and her half-brother, Calvin. Okay. So her grandfather and her half-brother, Calvin, were killed by a white person. They were killed by Sertoris. So let's not forget that they were not killed by a black person. They were killed by a white person. But this is the account that Joanna would give of the reason why the two of them are killed. This is what her father um, says to her. Your grandfather and brother are lying there, murdered not by one white man, but by the curse which God put on the whole race before your grandfather or your brother or me or you were ever thought of. Raised, doomed, and cursed to be forever and ever. A part of the white race's doom and curse for his sins. Remember that. His doom and his curse forever and ever. Mine, your mother's, yours, even though you are a child. The curse of every white child that was born and that ever will be born. None can escape it." This is about as thoroughgoing a curse as could be. It's basically comprehensive all the bases, covers every single member of the white race, and it goes on for an <coughs> eternity. That curse will never go away. So why is it that when two white people are killed by another white person, that that is the case of the curse of the black race? That is a really interesting bit of logic. But Joanna's um, father is firmly convinced that that is the case, that if they had not been blacks in this world, um, which actually probably would have been, it, it's true, if there had not been blacks in, in this world, the grandfather and Calvin would not have been killed by Sartori. So even though it seems like a strange kind of logic, once you spell it out in that way, actually, it is a strange but nonetheless truthful statement, I think. Um, and this is how Joanna's interpretation of that statement, her elaboration um, on that Image of the eternal of race as an eternal curse on the blacks, obviously, but also on the whites as well. Um, and given her father's, what her father says, she uh, this is what she herself thinks. But after that, I seem to see them, blacks, for the first time, not as people, but as a thing, a shadow in which I live, we lived, all white people, all other people. I thought of all the children coming forever and ever into the world, white, with the black shadow already falling upon them before they drew breath. And I seemed to see the black shadow in the shape of a cross. And it seemed like the white babies were struggling even before they drew breath to escape from the shadow. It was not only upon them, but beneath them, too, flung out, like the arms were flung out. As if they were nailed to the cross, I saw all the little babies that would ever be in the world, the ones not yet even born. A long line of them with their arms spread on the black cross. So this is a modern interpretation of Christ crucif- of 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 a race and time race being crucified, and it turns out that according to Joyner and her father that the dynamics of race and the legacy of slavery is such that whites will be crucified upon the Black Cross for for as long as they live, for as long as they are human beings on Earth. So it's an extravagant claim. Um, but um, And it's predicated on the notion um, and in some sense, it's a summary of all that we've seen so far, which is that the racial epithet is, in fact, an epithet that all of us reach for involuntarily when we are under duress. Right. So it's almost a kind of psychological necessity for us to call someone black. Um, that all of us, as human beings, and because all of us are under duress. So much of the time, there's just no way to avoid being under duress some of the time. Uh, because there's such good chances for all of us to be under duress. There are also good chances for all of us to call someone black, right? That we just need to, to make that kind of attribution um, to um, someone. Um, and it's because of that basic human psychological need that the relations between the races, so-called races, even though the membership of each one is always going to be in flux, but the relation between the supposed races, that relation is always going to be fraught, always going to be a terrible mm-hmm. relation. Um, and that's why, according to Johanna. The, it's not just a black shadow falling on white babies, but she actually goes so far as to say that that shadow is underneath them as well. I mean, this is an incredibly detailed, all-encompassing black shadow that basically envelops everyone. It's, a, it's on top of you, it's underneath you. Your arms are flung out, and it follows the con—you know—the shape of your arms. Basically, completely envelops every inch of you. Um, there's no escape from that black curse. So this is a really incredible claim um, and I think that it's helpful in order to contextualize that claim to think about the burden genealogy. So this is um, um, another, you know, this, I'm sure Faulkner would object to this kind of schematic yeah. <laughs> um, um, summary, but this is what we have, um, that it starts off the burden genealogy, starts off with someone called Nathaniel Burrington. Uh, It's changed to Burden uh, by Calvin Burden, who has a Huguenot Protestant wife from France. Um, And then um, Nathaniel Burden joined his father with two wives uh, the Mexican wife, um, Juana or Joanna, and the wife from New Hampshire, who is joined his actual mother. And then Calvin Burden, his son, first son killed by Satoris around the grandfather and then Joanna Burden. So this is the Burden genealogy. And we'll see that um, two names are being repeated twice, right? So the name Nathaniel appears twice and the name Calvin appears twice. It's definitely, Faulkner loves to play with names. So this is another instance of the non-trivial play. With names, because we all know who Calvin is, and he has everything to say about original sin and predestination. Um, John Calvin, right there, looking like someone who would make that kind of uh, statement about original sin. Um, And this is his treatise, um, Calvin, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, And this is what he says about original sin. Original sin, therefore, seems to be a hereditary, depravity, and corruption of our nature, diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath." So it doesn't really actually take the reprehensible action of anyone for us to be liable to God's wrath, Um, that actually we inherit that. The important thing is that it is hereditary; it is passed on from one generation to another, without the volition of the person upon which uh, it is visited, and uh, without even necessarily any reprehensible action on the part uh, on whom that original sin is visited. It simply is something that is passed on automatically from one generation to another. So this um, this long-standing tradition of thinking about and evil that we can't escape, um, that we're just in, involuntarily signed up you know, onto this legacy of evil and punishment and curse. Um, and so this is one, I would say, you know, this is Joanna's genealogy. And this is also partly Faulkner's genealogy as well. He wouldn't say that he's a Calvinist, but it's only very, very interesting. In um, this kind of thinking occurs that is transmitted across time, uh, across generations. Um, but there's another um, party to this uh, genealogy, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne. We already have seen how important Hawthorne is. And it turns out that he really is a figure who's of long standing relevance to Faulkner. So the Hawthorne-Faulkner connection. Uh, We know that in The Scarlet Letter, there's the the Reverend Dimmesdale, who commits adultery with Hester Brin. And as a laid there's the Reverend Whitfield, who commits adultery with Addie. So uh, Whitfield, Dimmesdale, and Whitfield actually making a speech that sounds almost like Dimmesdale's uh, speech at the end of The Scarlet Letter. in Light in August, the name Nathaniel is resurrected one more time. It's almost as if Faulkner is just paying this kind of uh, this oblique tribute to an author who has been very, very important to him. Um, and so, um, given the fact that um, that 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 the Hawthorne connection is actually a connection. Um, by way of the scarlet letter, um, which is in some sense a novel, not just about sin, some kind of sin, past sin um, that nobody, that you know, Dimmesdale certainly can shake off, and maybe Hester can shake off either uh, a sin that will stick to you and follow you wherever you go. Um, it's not only just about that, but it's also about sexual depravity or a sexual license to some extent, even though that is not represented at all um, in the Scarlet letter and not really represented in any details in both those novels, in both the Scott letter and As I Lay Dying. Um, the sexual license is only gesture that we know the outcome of that, uh, of that illicit sexuality, in the sense that we see Hester's uh, illegitimate daughter, Pearl, in The Scarlet and we see Addie's illegitimate son, Jewel, and uh, there's also a connection between Pearl and Jewel as well. Um, we see Hester's, we, we see Eddie's uh, illegitimate son, Jewel, in S L A I but in both those novels, Um, The sexual license is not really represented. It's not part of the novel. In um, Light in August, actually, um, we do see that sexual license front and center. Um, And what makes this even more complicated is that it's mapped onto the platform of race. So it is the weird combination of uh, belief in Calvinist original sin coupled with sexual wildness on the part of Joanna Burden. Um, and that is when the word negro comes up. This is yet another the licentious context for the use of the word negro. Now and then she appointed Tris beneath certain shrubs about the grounds, where he would find her naked or with her clothing half torn to ribbons upon her in the wild stroles of nymphomania. Her body gleaming and the slow shifting from one to another of such formerly erotic attitudes and gestures as obviously of the time of Petronius might have drawn. She would be wild in the close breathing half dark without walls, with her wild hair, each strand of which would seem to come alive like octopus tentacles and her wild hands and her breathing negro, negro, negro. So it might seem incomprehensible that someone like Johnnie, who spends all the time trying to help blacks in the South, who is on the board of a dozen uh, charities and schools, black schools, um, basically is dedicated her, her entire life to racial uplift, should be doing this. Um, but I think that it actually is. I think that as far as Faulkner is concerned, this incredible sexual license. Actually, goes hand in hand with a belief in Calvinist predestination, right? If you really believe that you are going to be stuck with original sin, that that is going to be upon you, that black shadow is going to be upon you, no matter what you do, then it really doesn't matter what you do. It is a weird kind of 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 granting of, of license that, you know, if all is, if you're going to be evil anyway. No matter what you do, then you might as well actually be evil in your conduct as well. Uh, something of that logic, uh, but I don't even think that is is as logical as that. It is just, for Faulkner, it's just the two sides um, of Joanna, um, and maybe the the, the just as High Tower has two faces, Joanna clearly has two faces, and the whole tradition, the Calvinist tradition, also has two faces. Um, and, and, and that is really Faulkner's uh, contribution to thinking about this particular kind of theology. Um, but what is, we also notice um, is that Faulkner tends to stick in all kinds of weird details um, into this otherwise, you know, kind of um, just kind of food-dressed um, description of um, sexual license in the past. He also has kind of weird kind of um, references to two other uh, traditions. One is um, Beastly, and the other is Petronius. So um, this is Beastly, the famous illustrator of Beasley. Um, this is Salome um, showing human beings in this kind of very erotic and wild gestures. Um, this is uh, another illustration for Oscar Wilde's Salome. And um, as for Petronius, um, it, um, this is uh, actually a not quite a novel; it's a sort of a <coughs> beginning of a novel. Um, is about two. Um, Petronius, the writer, was Tiricon. Um It the reason that is related to um, to the Faulkner novels, all of them, um, is that especially Light in August, is that this novel, early novel, is about two <coughs> foreigners with Greek-sounding names, and Copius and Gitten in southern Italy. So this is the first instance of northerners going south. Not quite Yankees going south to Mississippi, but similar dynamics. Um, And Joanna knows that, and her father and the whole family knows that they're hated as Yankees and copybackers, as we've seen last time. So the whole dynamics of people from one region going south and being hated by the locals. Uh, but in this case, there's this additional complication that this is a very cold northerner going to the hot south and in some instances being heated up by that uh, tropical environment, uh, but basically staying cold at heart. So this is um, the pendulum swing of Joanna from that incredible sexual license to the other side. And she also, interestingly enough, she also uses the word Negro in that context. when she swings to the other side. She was sitting quite still on the bed, her hands on her lap, her still New England face. It was still the face of a spinster, prominently boned, long, a little thin, almost man-like. In contrast to it, her plump body was more richly and softly animal than ever. Lord, she said in a tone musing, detached, impersonal, no, a full measure, even to a bastard Negro child. I would like to see fathers in Calvin's faces. Um, the syntax, I think, is very interesting. That, What is in the parentheses, the still face of the spinster and then the animal body. Uh, kind of perfect summary of the two sides of Joanna. Um, and if, even for father a very ungainly syntax, a uh, deliberate syntax. Um, and then the last part of that, um, the bastard Negro child. And it is not accidental that this is the moment when Saanich is invoking Calvin. I would like to see Faden, Nathaniel's face and Calvin's faces, it's almost as if this is the New 20th century addition to the scarlet letter, and a new 20th century addition to the longstanding theology of Calvin. this is what happens when you uh, when you uh, when you inherit from those two traditions um, is that you both do good by um, you know by supposedly helping uh, blacks, but then you also um, engage in this. Uncontrollable uh, sexual orgy with them, Um, and the 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 um, the bastard Negro child is 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 kind of the also involuntary outcome uh, of the union of those two sides. Um, So you know it's sort of easy to see why Joanna is not going to be an easy person for Joe Christmas to deal with, right? I mean, anyone uh, with have a hard time trying to negotiate, trying to deal with someone like that. Um, and Joe Christmas's response is like this. Um, at this point, Joanna wants him to go to school, um, wants him to study law with a black lawyer, and wants to turn her over all her funds. All the money that she has in it's quite, it's not insignificant. He wants to turn over all the money to him. And this is his response. "'To school,' his mouth said. "'A nigger school. Me. Yes. Then you can go to Memphis. You can read law in Peebo's office. He will teach you law. And then learn law in the office of a nigger lawyer,' his mouth said. "'Yes, then I will turn over all the business to you, all the money, all of it, so that when you need money for yourself, you could. You would know how. Lawyers know how to do it. So. They he would be helping them out of darkness and not accuse of going you even if they found out. But a nigger in college, a nigger lawyer, his voice had quiet, not even argumentative, just promptive. They were not looking at one another. and She had not looked up since he entered. Tell them, she said, tell niggers that I'm a nigger too. Essentially, um, it's, it's this is a moment when Joanna is both completely tone deaf. Um, But also uh, just a really sad, you know, just incredibly sad person. That um, this is the best that she can do for him. She's too embarrassed to. She's trying to bribe him as well. She's trying to say, you know, I'm going to turn over all the money to you. Um, And it really doesn't matter if you study law. You know the way how to use the money for you know for your own pleasure. Really, she can't really bring herself to say that word. But that's about as she wants to do the most for him and she would not admit to it. She would not name when she's turning over to him. So all the ellipses of, the, of those unfinished sentences. She's both tone deaf and, but also actually at the maximum point of, of goodwill and love maybe even towards him, wanting to do the most for him. And his way of responding is by being totally ironic about the word nigger. So I think that the least, and obviously about her as well. Um, so I think that we can say that when the word nigger um, is used in that context, it's also a moment of psychological duress. And maybe he just even can't bear to acknowledge the fact that she actually wants to do so much for him. You know, I think that that would be one way to read that, that this is actually not um, a moment when there's no love felt or that you know that that that, that, that romance is over It's not that, but that maybe it's too much and that the way that he's responding to that is by being totally cynical and st- uh, uh, satirical and ironic about the whole thing. So that scene is really open to any number of readings. Um, all we know that it is definitely not an innocent word when it's used by oneself. That it is as charged. and it's painful to use as one is attributed to oneself by other people.